Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dice and Dachshunds. I'm Matthew. And I'm Diana. And we are going to talk about board games. Well, Dachshunds are in the room and may offer commentary at some point, probably if somebody parks their car too close to the house. Today we're going to be talking about Steampunk Rally and a game called Robinson Crusoe. Steampunk Rally was the game Diana was most looking forward to trying at the end of our last podcast. It's a racing game that I believe goes up to eight players that involves many of the greatest inventors in history racing across the Himalayas in steampunk-style contraptions they've cobbled together from various bits and bobs that they collect via a drafting mechanic and then power using a dice placement mechanic. Yeah, this game was a lot of fun. I like uh, the art style a lot. It's got lots of sort of fun, crazy contraption sorts of stuff. And then they've made a real effort to be as diverse as they can with the inventors, especially when it comes to including a lot of women. You kind of have to look some of them up because history hasn't always made them as famous as they perhaps deserve. But it's neat to be like, hey, I'm, you know, this lady who worked on the Manhattan Project. For the gameplay itself, it's quick, it's fun. It makes sense that it goes up to eight people because it it's just everybody can kind of play their turn simultaneously and it's not, you know, there's not a lot of waiting. Of course, Matthew stopped me, as he often does, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to schedule a rematch. But I enjoyed it. I think a big part of why I won is that the equipment that you attached to your device, your vehicle, is selected via drafting. And for those of you who may not know, drafting is where each player is given a hand of cards and they pick one and they hand the cards off to the next player who then picks one and hands the remaining cards off to the next player and so on. So particularly in a two-player game, you're making strong decisions about not just what you want but what you don't want your opponent to have. And in that sort of situation, having played the game before is a really big advantage because you know what's going to be valuable at various points in the game. You maybe have a little bit of a better sense of how common various components are. So, yeah, it it made it much easier for me than it was for Diana. But I don't know that I would say I stomped her. She was pretty close behind me until the very end, and then I got a couple of... Pulled way ahead. Well, got lucky. As Matthew mentioned, once you've finished the drafting phase where you get your components, then you have to power them. And you do that with dice. And you you get dice in, in a couple of different ways. You can... Some, some cards let you store them. Sometimes you can get some just by going through someplace. Sometimes you get them from using a card for, for its dice rather than for its components. When you roll your dice, and depending on what you've rolled, you can place them in various places in your contraptions to power them. There's a couple of different kinds of power, like electricity and steam and things, that are represented by different colors of dice. Some components you have to roll above a certain amount. Some components, it doesn't matter what you roll. And then, once they've done their job, they don't automatically come off. They sit there and gum up the works, and you have to use abilities and other components and other special cards to remove them. And then as you go 
rumbling and bumping along through the Himalayas, you hit spaces that are rough terrain, and you take damage if you don't protect yourself. There's a, a kind of movement called smooth movement that is not affected by terrain, but if you don't have that, and it's more expensive, of course, then you're bumping along and, and things are flying off your machine, and it's, it's kind of fun and thematic, even when it's also frustrating. I definitely recommend it, and I'm looking forward to seeing how well the game performs with a larger crowd of people. So far, we've only played it two-player. One of the things that I really like about the game is that they clearly made a couple of decisions to put more of an emphasis on fun. Part of what you're doing when you're drafting is taking cards and arranging them with other cards to make sure all the parts of your invention connect up in a way that allow it to move. So keeping an eye on those connections as you're drafting components is important, but they also make a point to state in the manual that you can rearrange your vehicle whenever you want. So if you've built yourself into a corner, but there's an arrangement that will allow you to attach everything together, your inventor is so smart and so talented that they can instantly reconfigure it. And they also say that you can jettison components whenever you want. While your components are also your hit points, so it's nice to keep them around, even if they're gummed up and you don't have the resources to clean them out at that moment, other times you're done with the rocket boosters and you need to get rid of them to make room for a penny-farthing bicycle. The next game we were going to talk about was going to be Exodus Proxima Centauri, which is a game about fighting for control of the galaxy, but unfortunately we weren't really able to put as much time into it as we'd like to before talking about it. What we did get to do was sit down with my brother and my parents and play a game of Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe is an infamously difficult cooperative game where all of the people playing are castaways on a randomly generated island trying to survive the weather and wild animals and disease and scarce resources and just about any other bad thing you can imagine happening to somebody on an obscure island. The game is set up with a variety of scenarios. I think there are six. And each scenario you play changes the rules of the game in terms of what your goal is, how many turns you have to achieve it, what various treasures and other things do in that particular scenario. We were playing the first scenario. You've all washed up on the beach of this island, and you have a set amount of time before you know a ship will sail by in the distance. And in that amount of time, you have to collect a set amount of wood to build this huge bonfire so the boat can see you and will send somebody to help you. Of course, getting the wood is difficult, but what's particularly difficult is not dying. And so far, we haven't managed to do that. (laughs) Um, As I said, this game is well known for being extremely difficult, but it is also extremely cool. I'm not quite sure why I always end up being the one who talks about the art style, because I know Matthew appreciates art in games too, but the art is one of the most amazing things about Robinson Crusoe. It is a beautiful game in pretty much the style you'd expect. It's kind of like pencil drawings, like an old map. 
and then the the island section of the board has this sort of very faint sort of outline of like an of a landscape and then you place your tiles as you discover the island on it there's a section that's kind of like a log book and you put your inventions that you have the option to make down on them and flip them over and that's your background all the cards have art in addition to the board and there's a lot of cards in this game there are so many cards even the dice are pretty even when they're killing you, which they frequently do. Like Matthew said, it's it's really, really hard. You have to collect food, and if you don't get the food, you get wounds, and you have to build shelter, and if you don't build shelter, you get wounds. And so you're, you're constantly in this battle for resources. Partway through, you start rolling weather dice, and the weather comes in and washes away a bunch of your food and wood, and the attempt to not only not die, but also put wood on this bonfire is, is just, we've, this is the second time we've played it, although I think the first time it might have been just the two of us. And we made it further this time, meaning that we didn't die quite as early, but we died, because that's what you do. Well, it's true that we died this time as well. It was because one of us didn't have enough food, which... I'd say is a substantial improvement over the simultaneous bad goat meat induced deadly vomiting that killed us last time. So I'd call that a win. Speaking of bad goat meat vomiting, uh, there are a couple <laughs> components of this game that are really interesting and unusual. One of them is the, the way the choices are set up. When you go to do something, it's a worker placement game where each player is given two pawns that represent their character's time. You can commit both pawns to doing something and you're assured that it will come out okay. Or you can split your time between doing two things, but you will do neither of them as well. And that means that you have to roll the dreaded dice. You'll roll three dice, and there are three different dice for each of the major action types with different probability of bad things happening to you. And the dice will tell you if you succeeded, if you got hurt in the process, and if you had an adventure while you were doing whatever it was. This can involve running into a tiger while exploring a new part of the island, or grabbing a particularly weak piece of timber while building a roof that could come back to bite you later. And usually in these situations, you're given a choice. Do you want this immediate reward, or to avoid paying an immediate cost, or do you want to avoid something bad happening to you later? For example, you can sleep out under the stars one night and take some damage, or you can go back to camp after having seen the tiger, but probably lead him back to the camp. And when you do that, you take the card that told you about your encounter with the tiger, and you shuffle it into the event deck that is telling you what happens each round of the game, so that eventually that choice to come back to camp will come back to literally bite you as the tiger decides to wander into the camp and start stealing your food and biting you and other bad things. So in the case of the goat, we found a dead goat. We knew it was not a good goat, that it had probably been dead a while, and we knew from looking at the card that eventually 
if we hadn't developed some of our own medicine on the island, which is a thing you can do, eventually, if we ate this goat meat now, we would all get violently ill later. And we were about to starve to death, so we decided, bottoms up, uh, <laughs> we were all going to eat this goat meat. And we shuffled it into the deck, and we went back about our business, trying to keep, stay alive and pile up this wood. And eventually, the, the goat meat came back at just the wrong moment, and we were all very weak and all died. I've probably mentioned before on this podcast my love of lots of little components in a game. I don't know, don't know what to say. I just like games with lots of little bits. This is why I love Conferna so much. And Robinson Crusoe does have lots and lots of bits. There are something like five or six decks of cards. There are your components. There are you know the ones representing the players. There are extra ones you can get to help you do things. There are markers that go on sliders like the morale track and the roof integrity track and the weapons track and all these things. There are uh, markers that designate that a certain tile is dangerous or has something extra on it. There are exploration tokens that you get when you explore a new tile. You know, there are ones representing food and wood and various other things. And and they're all there's there's plastic ones and wood wood ones, some of which are the same color but mean different things. But the overall effect is that you've got this sort of enormous sort of sprawling world. And when you first look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, this is incredibly complicated. But as with many such things, once you sort of sit down and say, okay, these are these, or these are these, and we're not even using these this game because that's for a different scenario, it becomes much more manageable and the game sort of cooks along. And, you know, the other night when we were playing it, several people we were playing with uh, had never played before. And, uh, you know, initially they're just kind of like, what, what is all of this? But, you know, as we played a few rounds and, you know, they had as much opinion as everyone else about whether we should take a risk and try and, uh, you know, gather resources in two different places or if we should double up on one of them and who should double up and, you know, all the different decisions you have to make when you're playing the game, which are kind of what makes it fun. All those little pieces, those tokens, those markers, they help the game be much more thematic than it ordinarily ordinarily would be because it allows the world of the game, the map, the event deck, to really adapt to what you've decided to do and what has happened to you over the course of the game. If my brother went exploring and was bitten on the nose by a snake, he gets a token on his character sheet that shows that he has a head injury, and when the card comes up again later on, if we haven't developed an antivenom from available things on the island, we were able to remember that he was the one bitten because of that token. The board is a really interesting design because it's really about four times as big as it needs to be. The map of the island only takes up a little bit more than a quarter of the board, and the rest of it is there not necessarily to act as an organizational aid because you're putting the different decks of cards on there. There's some tracks printed on there. But I think it's to make the whole thing feel like a more cohesive whole. When you're playing a game like Arkham Horror that 
also has something like 12 decks of tiny cards. They're just arrayed around the board, and it looks more like clutter. In this game, they have places, and there's art surrounding them, and your eyes are being directed to various parts of the board at various parts in the turn because of the way the turn works. And it helps suck you into the world of the game. You feel more like survivors gathered around a map you've drawn on a piece of parchment that you've found instead of just people playing a game. It's really wonderful. The designer, Ignacy Trezicek, something like that, has his own company now called Portal Games, and he's developed several wonderful games like Imperial Settlers and Hiroshima Hex. He's announced that he's making a sort of spiritual successor to this game that's going to come out this year, 2016, that is a similar style of game that takes place on Mars. And he's also announced that that game is going to leverage a, a custom app, I would assume to take the place of all these different event cards and to make it a little more seamless when events are shuffled into a deck so that you don't have to keep track of the of the bear card or, you know, I don't know, the Space Mars bear card. Uh, you, the, the app will just tell you when it comes up again. And I'm hoping that that's going to make for an even more immersive experience. So that pretty much covers the games we've played recently. I can tell you games that I'm at least looking forward to playing with. I broke down and ordered a copy of Catacombs 3rd Edition, which is a dungeon-crawling game with a heavy dexterity element. So each level of the dungeon is a large sheet of cardboard with obstacles stuck in it, and your heroes and the monsters that they are fighting are discs, and you are flicking them about the board. It sounds and looks delightfully silly. I'm looking forward to giving it a try. Diana's only experience with it at this point has been a video I've shown her on shutupandsitdown.com. Do you have any thoughts, Diana? It looks like fun, but other than that, according to the Shut Up and Sit Down guys, handicapping via shots of hard alcohol is, is an acceptable tactic. So we'll, we'll, we'll see about uh, what sort of uh, tactics we want to use. Well, I think that does it for tonight. It's been a long week. Sorry this podcast is a little late. We'll do better next time. We're sorry. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, good night. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at diceanddoxins at gmail.com. You still have an opportunity to be the very first person to do so. Don't delay. Yeah. <laughs>